Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Yulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Fili Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Congolese nationals in South Africa have threatened to report police brutality with IPID. Africa is losing more than $50 billion every year in illicit financial outflows. And the results of a new cost of hunger in Africa study indicate that Madagascar's economy loses $1.5 million US dollars per year. The first up, the news with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Rand's group says the Democratic Republic of Congo security forces have killed at least 34 people amid protests in the country against President Joseph Kabila's extended rule. Human Rights Watch researcher Ida Sewa says the group has confirmed the deaths in several cities and the toll is likely to climb. She also told Radio France International that security forces are targeting both protesters and passers-by. Kabila's constitutional mandate ended this week. A court has ruled it can remain in power until a new leader is elected. November elections have been postponed indefinitely. Police say the heavy security presence will be maintained through the holidays. A detailed summary of a United Nations report on a deadly attack on a humanitarian convoy in Syria in September has been submitted to the UN Security Council. The report is by the UN Headquarters Board of Inquiry established to review and investigate the attack on the UN Syrian Arab Red Crescent convoy, which occurred in Aram al-Kubra on the 19th of September. The 31-truck convoy reportedly was bringing aid to the city of Aleppo, when it was hit by an airstrike, 17 vehicles were destroyed and at least 10 people were killed. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon submitted the report summary to the Security Council. UN Deputy Spokesperson for Han Hock. The board noted that only aircraft operating as part of the forces of the International Coalition Forces and aircraft of the Russian Federation and of the Syrian Arab Air Force had the capabilities needed to carry out an attack of this kind. As no party has alleged the involvement of International Coalition Forces aircraft, the board concluded that their involvement was highly unlikely. Meanwhile, Russia says airstrikes in Syria have killed 35,000 rebels and succeeded in halting a chain of jihadist revolutions in Africa and the Middle East. Defense, the defense minister says Russian aircraft have flown 19,000 sorties in Syria, destroying 775 training camps and 405 weapons factories. Russia's intervention in Syria is widely seen as having saved President Bashar al-Assad's forces from defeat and is being crucial to the retaking control of Aleppo. An experimental Ebola vaccine provides high protection against the deadly virus. That's the message from the World Health Organization following the publication of the final trial results for the RSVSV Zibov vaccine in the medical journal The Lancet. The trial was led by WHO together with Guinea's Ministry of Health and other international partners. DNPN reports. The trial was held in a coastal region of Guinea that was still experiencing Ebola cases. More than 11,800 people took part and nearly half received the vaccine. WHO reported that no Ebola cases were recorded among this group 10 days or more after being inoculated. Meanwhile, 23 cases were reported among those who did not receive the vaccine. While these compelling results come too late for those who lost their lives during West Africa's Ebola epidemic, they show that when the next Ebola outbreak hits, we will not be defenseless, said WHO's Dr. Marie-Paul Clenny, the study's lead author. 
And finally, authorities in Lagos have been urged to ensure that the 2017 budget will improve funding to tackle the unacceptable water crisis in Algeria's biggest city. The appeal has been made by UN human rights expert Leo Heller following the state governor's recent presentation of the fiscal plan to the House of Assembly. Estimates suggest that only 10% of the population has access to state-supplied services. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, and Congolese nationals in South Africa have threatened to report police brutality with IPID. This after one of their own was allegedly shot at close range with rubber bullets during the anti-Joseph Kabila protest at the DRC embassy in Pretoria on Tuesday. The eight Congolese nationals arrested during that protest will remain in custody until their next court appearance next week. Maluti Obuseng reports. They stand accused of public violence for their illegal protest that turned violent outside the DRC embassy in Pretoria on Tuesday. Despite being held in custody, the Congolese reiterated their call for DRC President Joseph Kabila to step down. Prince Impinda speaks for DRC community in South Africa. We will continue to protest until Joseph Kabila quits and Mr. Ben Mpoko is no longer the legitimate ambassador of in South Africa. One of the protesters was allegedly injured when she was shot at close range with a rubber bullet during the protest. The community plans to report the matter to the police watchdog, IPID. Yes, as a community, we are saying that we're going to take this case further to the IPID. We're going to sue the police for their brutality. It is unacceptable the manner in which they handled the picket on that very day. First and foremost, on the record again, we did ask for their permission. They refused to grant us permission because they wanted to do what they did. Now we have so many of our compatriots, uh, Congolese, who are injured. The matter in court has been postponed to verify the details of eight accused, also to ensure there are not flight risks before their appearance next Thursday. I am Malut Ubuseng in Pretoria. 2016 has marked one of the most dramatic handover processes in the office of the South African Public Protector. This follows a series of what appears to be public spats between the incumbent Busisiwe Mkwebane and her predecessor Tulima Donsela. Madonsela's seven-year term ended in October this year. However, the two have been at loggerheads over how Madonsela handled her state of capture report. She is now a subject of investigations. Amos Paho looks back at the year that was for the Public Protector's Office. Advocate Tulima Tonsela scored one of the biggest victories this year in the so-called Ngandla Gate when the Constitutional Court ruled that remedial actions of the public protector are binding. The case had been brought forward by the Economic Freedom Fighters and the Democratic Alliance. The two parties wanted the court to confirm Tonsela's remedial actions that President Jacob Zuma must pay back a reasonable portion of money used for non-security features at his Ngandla home. Matonsela described the court ruling as a victory for all South Africans. They now know that the public protector is not a, a gate to nowhere. Today is a historical day for all the people of South Africa and for this constitutional institution. It is historic because our constitutional court the ultimate guardians of our Constitution has confirmed the supremacy of the Constitution and the rule of law in this country. The court has made it clear that the Constitution and the law apply to everyone, irrespective of who and where they are. Matonsela also handled another high-profile case involving President Zuma. This time around, she was looking into the alleged involvement of the Gupta family in the running of state affairs, including alleged involvement in the appointment of ministers and deputy ministers. President Zuma was amongst those who were interviewed by Matonsela. However, the release of her report was delayed by a court action 
wherein President Zuma and two ministers, Museven Zizwani and Desfan Royen, argued that they were not given enough time to respond. This move, which prevented Matonsela from releasing her report before leaving office, was met with fierce criticism from opposition parties, UDM leader Bantu Holomisa. We have noted the delaying tactics which are being introduced by some of the spoilers whose aim is to protect their master and the Guptas. But we are going to deal with them right now. Musi Maimani is the Democratic Alliance leader. We believe it's the right of the people of South Africa to know the truth about uh, state capture. We've shown the fact that we want to fight the president at every corner, regardless of his delays and all of his ministers. And therefore today I think it's it's a great opportunity for the judiciary to apply itself to such a crucial matter and for us to get resolution so we can get that report and proceed with the actions that emanate from it to make sure those who have been responsible for state capture must in fact be held accountable. President Zuma pulled out of the case at the 11th hour. While out of office, Matonzela openly questioned President Zuma's motives for approaching the courts. They now know that the public protector is not a gate to nowhere. Today is a historical day for all the people of South Africa and for this constitutional institution. It is historic because our constitutional court, the ultimate guardians of our constitution, has confirmed the supremacy of the constitution and the rule of law in this country. The court has made it clear that the constitution and the law apply to everyone, irrespective of who and where they are. Mkwebani shocked many when she appeared before parliament to present the organization's 2015-2016 annual report. She claimed that there was no proper handover, that she inherited an institution with problematic staff morale and funding problems. This painted Matonsela in a negative light. However, Mkwabani dismissed any suggestion that she is anti-Matonsela. She had her own approach. I also have my own approach. So South Africans, the media, they have their own views. But to put the record straight, we are not in competition. We are serving our people. We are making sure that the country or the democracies enjoyed by all who live in it. Mkwabani has now asked the police to investigate any possible violation of the law after Tulima Tonzela admitted to giving an audio tape of her interview with President Zuma to a media company. This has also attracted criticism from opposition parties who have accused Mkwabani of acting on President Zuma's instructions. I'm Amos Paro in Johannesburg. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, has rejected calls by the ruling African National Congress in the Western Cape for it to be to recall its premier, Helen Zilla. This comes after the ANC in the province accused Zilla of exacerbating racism instead of addressing it. It related to an incident at a Camps Bay restaurant where a black couple received their bill, which had been marked as two blacks. Mercedes Percent tells us more. The alleged racial classification of customers at the Camps Bay restaurant has caused outrage on social media. Former DA leader and Premier Helen Zeller allegedly responded on Twitter asking why is it okay to racially classify people for jobs but not to identify people at the table by their race. The ANC in the province has slammed Zilla's response, branding her a chief racist. ANC provincial spokesperson in the Western Cape is Yonela Tiko. When we heard first the story in Bangalore, a restaurant in, in Kemp's Bay, we were offended. We realized that this you can't categorize people according to race. But it, it took an almost extreme when the premier of the province, Helen Zille, decided to jump in. Now, Helen Zille has got two ways that she deals with racism. Firstly, she denies that people uh, are experiencing racism in the province. And secondly, if that doesn't catch fire, she then says, let me explain it to you, that it was actually not racism. Digo says the Western Cape is calling on the DA to recall Zilla, saying she's not fit to be the premier of the province. He says for a leader in a critical position of authority like Helen Zilla,
She justifies and defends racism in the Western Cape instead of defending the victims of racism. So we think that over so many incidences where instead of as a premier, a place, a person who is in a position of authority to say, if you are being victimized, you can count on me. I'm a leader. No, she decides to uh, exacerbate the victimization by denying it and by explaining that it's actually not victimization. We think that over a multiple issues like that, the Snowview Mafia Fuga situation, um, there's been so many incidents. So the DA, if they want to retain some sort of dignity for the party, they need to recall it. But for the province, if we are to continue to be this mosaic, that should be an example because we are multicultural to the province and to the world. We can't continue to have a premier who doesn't appreciate that goal. However, DA Executive Federal Chairperson James Self brushed off the ANC's call for Zilla to be recalled, saying the DA still has full confidence in Zilla. We are going to ignore it. We have absolutely no intention whatsoever of responding to the ANC's call to recall her. She is doing a splendid job as the Premier of the Western Cape. The ANC wants to racialize everything and we have no intention to sink into their level. If they wish to do something about the situation in the Western Cape, I suggest they go and find some more votes. Yonela Diko says racism in the Western Cape is deeper and must be rooted out because it is institutionalized and it is used for economic exclusion of black people in the province. That report by Mercedes Besant in Cape Town. Africa is losing more than $50 billion every year in illicit financial outflows as governments and multinational companies engage in fraudulent schemes aimed at avoiding tax payments to some of the world's poorest countries, impeding development projects and denying poor people access to crucial services. According to a report released by the African Union's high-level panel on illicit, illicit financial flows, illegal transfers from African countries have tripled since 2001, when $20 billion was siphoned off. To find out more on this, Asanda Mazzaunyane spoke to tax expert Kathy Nicolau and Davi Root, Director and Chief Economist of Efficient Group. The high-level panel has been um, publishing reports since the early 2011s and that. So since 2010, they have started working on it. But it is a contentious issue largely because of the way that it is estimated, and I think that's what causes a lot of the controversy in the area. Um, And obviously, it is tax evasion, which is very difficult to prove because tax evasion borders on tax avoidance. And it's about abuse of transfer pricing that we talk about um, in the form of illicit financial flows. Um, Although tax avoidance is not illegal, tax evasion certainly is. And it's for the tax authorities in countries to really prove that perpetrating companies are actually avoiding tax by really abusing the tax transfer pricing system. And it's really that proof of avoidance into evasion that makes it a really difficult area to work in. Can you tell us what tax evasion actually constitutes, Uh, Davi? Tax evasion is illegal. illegal. You're not allowed to evade that. You can avoid it. You can pay as little tax as possible. But, you know, this sort of information is the first time, as far as I know, that we've seen a report like this coming from Africa. But this sort sort of information, or at least estimates, have been available for quite some time. There are certain techniques that economists use to estimate more or less what the potential evasion in a specific country or in a specific region, like for example Africa is. And without a doubt, Africa loses tens of billions of rands through tax evasion because of all sorts of schemes. But let me just point out the danger with a report like this. And I'm very concerned about this because the danger of a report like this is that uh, politicians will wake up to this now. Politicians will put all sort of measures in place to make sure that these taxes are not evaded anymore. It will be making it much more difficult for people to evade the different taxes and make sure that they, that they pay what they are required to pay. And that is the danger because the reason why taxpayers evade tax is because of high tax levels, as simple as that. And secondly, the reason why taxpayers evade tax is because they do not trust some of the regimes in in charge in certain countries in Africa. They take their money out to countries like, for example, there are many places. Uh, America is probably the best tax haven in the world, but there are many other 
jurisdictions as well. And the question that one should ask is, why do tax evaders take their money there? Why can't Africa become a tax haven as well and in the process attack a lot of capital? The question must be asked. Why do people take their money out of the continent? Cathy, you've done extensive research on, on tax evasion. And uh, um, if we look at the GEG Africa uh, research that's been done, yes. where it analyzes trade uh, mispricing and uh, looks at five African countries, namely South Africa, Nigeria, Zambia, Egypt, and Morocco. Uh, in terms of who is actually responsible when we talk about tax evasion, in your, your research and your view, who would you say is at the center of it? So, I mean, I've been looking at illicit financial flows for the last five years having worked at the Financial Intelligence Centre and we looked at it from a macro perspective and a micro perspective trying to understand the illicit economy and then illicit flows specifically. Uh And obviously when you're looking at it from a financial intelligence perspective, you're looking at money laundering and terror financing more specifically. But money laundering has only ever been prosecuted or criminalized as a result of tax evasion. So you can't strip out tax evasion if you're not if you want to think about money laundering. Mm. Um, So fundamentally the research that is done on illicit financial flows identifies and that's actually the UNECA report in 2011 that shows that There are three components of illicit financial flows. The first is commercial tax evasion, which is actually the largest component, and that's what this particular GIG Africa paper looks at. Mm. The second component is um, criminal activities, so black market activities, which includes drugs, rhino poaching, etc. And the third, obviously, which is only a small component, about 5%, is only corruption. Mm. But that corruption is actually the largest lever. So if you're looking at the African continent or even in South America, your political elites are often behind a lot of the looting that takes place in, in African countries. So the reason we look at commercial tax evasion is because it is the largest component. It also aligns with the work that the OECD does on the BEPS process, which is the base erosion and profit shifting stuff. Um, South Africa has the Davis Commission to actually look at that. Mm-hmm. And what that tries to introduce is measures to try and um, stem illicit flows through base erosion and profit shifting by introducing things like country-by-country country reporting, um, more um, open and transparent um, tax, um, informa- like automatic exchange of tax information, etc. Mm. So fundamentally, uh, the report that I look at then focuses on the commercial tax evasion component because that is the largest component. And having come from a financial intelligence centre perspective, a lot of measures have been put in place by the Financial Action Task Force that actually try and close the loopholes in the financial space to move money cross borders. Mm. And fundamentally, tax evasion really is about moving money from high tax country jurisdictions into low tax destinations as Darby had mentioned. So um, any multinational that has got cross-border flows or any company in South Africa is going to try and move money into a destination where tax is lower so that they don't have to pay as much tax in South Africa Mm. and hence the notion of tax evasion. What we're fundamentally finding and that's what the article tends to point to is that as a result of closing the financial loopholes, we're seeing a ballooning effect in the trade space, which is trade mispricing, which is a form of misinvoicing, either over or under invoicing, whether it's in the form of transfer mispricing by a multinational or trade mispricing by two what are seemingly unrelated entities. Mm. And we're seeing a ballooning in the trade space. And the reason we see this ballooning is because it's easy to move money through using goods and services, but particularly traded goods, largely because customs officials don't really vet all the consignments globally. So the research is showing that about 2% of all consignments that cross borders are only ever vetted. So it's very easy to move money, goods, services, etc. whether you're mispricing or whether you're moving goods illegally. So in a consignment, you could have rhino horn, for example. You could have bales of cash sitting in that same consignment. So you could be doing all three, but using sort of trade as the, the fundamental area of concern. So that's what the report basically looks at. That was tax expert Kathy Nicolau and Davi Roots, director and chief economist of the Efficient Group, speaking to Asanda Matsalonyan. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The results of a new cost of hunger in Africa study indicate that Madagascar's economy loses 1.5 million US dollars per year, which is an equivalent of 14.5% of the country's gross domestic product due to malnutrition. The report highlights the extent of social and economic losses 
caused by child malnutrition in a given country. Madagascar has the fifth highest rate of stunting in the world. The study aims to enhance African government's awareness of child malnutrition. More from David Orr, communications officer for Southern Africa United Nations World Food Programme. Well, this is a study that is led by the African Union with a number of other partners, including the United Nations World Food Programme. And it is conducted continent-wide. It has been undertaken in 10 countries in Africa so far. Basically, this study calculates the loss to a country's economy of undernutrition. They use quite complex systems and means of data calculation to assess the actual loss to the gross domestic product, GDP, of the country per year. Mm. And it's a way of really bringing home to people the fact that undernutrition is not just a few random children missing out on a meal and going hungry. It has severe implications, not just for the individual, but for the society as a whole. To which extent, really, David, can child undernutrition or malnutrition really have um, social or economic um, impact on, on a society? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that undernutrition can have not just severe physical effects on a child is it can actually have a mental impact in the sense that undernutrition first of all leads to stunting which is low growth low height for age the child does not grow up to be as tall as other children if it doesn't get the right nutrition in the crucial first few years of life This also affects the cognitive development, the development of the brain, which in turn has all sorts of implications for the way that child performs in school, for the health of that child, for the development of that child into an adult, and ultimately for the extent to which that person can contribute to the economy in terms of productivity at work. So it has lifelong implications. Mm -hmm. And we now know that it has had tremendous economic implications on Madagascar. If you can just tell us briefly about that. Well, that's right. The, The calculation is that hunger is costing Madagascar 14.5% of its GDP per annum, $1.5 billion dollars per annum, which is a huge amount of money. Um, In fact, it's one of the higher figures in these cost of hunger studies. It ranges depending on the country. I mean, in some countries, it's been as low as 3% of GDP, but 14.5% is a huge amount. And it just shows the the extent to which malnutrition, chronic malnutrition, is endemic in in Madagascar. Just reflecting a bit on the fact that uh, Madagascar happens to have the fifth highest rate of stunting in the world, does the World Food Programme have any kind of intervention programs, as it were, uh, in assisting in Madagascar? I think three of, of the countries with the highest levels of stunting are in Africa. So you've got Burundi, you've got Ethiopia, and you've got Madagascar among the top five. Um, And a lot of WFP's operations, not just in Madagascar, but worldwide, are geared towards ensuring that young children, um, and not just young children, but also pregnant uh, women, nursing and nursing mothers have the right nutrition uh, at this crucial period of their lives. We talk about the first 1,000 days of being really vital in a, in a person's development. This is the, from the moment of conception to two years of age. And if, if, if a, a person 
doesn't get the nutrition it needs. And we're talking really here, I think, about a, a balanced diet. That was David Orr, Communications Officer for Southern Africa United Nations World Food Programme, speaking to Khomuzomo Pulani. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, a rights group says the Democratic Republic of Congo security forces have killed at least 34 people amid protests in the country against President Joseph Kabila's extended rule. A detailed summary of a United Nations report on a deadly attack on a humanitarian convoy in Syria in September has been submitted to the UN Security Council. And authorities in Lagos have been urged to ensure that the 2017 budget will improve funding to tackle the unacceptable water crisis in Nigeria's biggest city. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. As 2016 draws to an end, Doctors Without Borders or MSF says there are major stories that have made a huge impact on the work the International Humanitarian Organization does and around the world. To reflect on these and other stories, Tato Tolo spoke to Bori Lakhranya, who is the head of communications at MSF. It's been a tough year. Um, I think anybody who's been paying enough attention to what's been happening around the world uh, will know that. Uh, I think uppermost in our minds currently the ongoing crisis as a result of the, the Syrian civil war now entering uh, as of next year. It's it's sixth uh, year running. And I think we all saw the, the quite dramatic scenes very recently in East Aleppo where people are now finally being evacuated from uh, a part of the city that was besieged for uh, at least four months. And in this instance, people living uh, still in these uh, enclaves, these besieged areas, were um, cut off from uh, from significant aid, uh, be that humanitarian aid or, or medical assistance. Mm-hmm. And uh, supplies that they had uh, dwindled. Um, and we also know during that conflict in Syria, in fact, uh, many hospitals uh, also came under fire. Uh, during uh, bombardments by government forces mm-hmm. and also uh, the Russians. So that's just one aspect of it. The other, of course, is um, the uh, Mediterranean uh, Sea uh, migration and refugee crisis, where at least this year, we know since the start of the year, almost 5,000 men, women, and children have died while attempting to, to cross the, the sea route. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a significantly higher number than uh, than 2015, and uh, this late in the year, people are still making that crossing a very dangerous one. Uh, we know from our teams who work uh, on the Mediterranean and three rescue craft, uh, they've assisted directly in the the, the rescue and the, um, bringing people safely on board of of over 19,000 people from these overcrowded boats. So it means that for us, I mean, we're we're actually a small drop in the ocean of what mm-hmm. the needs are, but we know that it is like one about it, uh, one of Every seven people rescued in the Mediterranean uh, have been uh, people assisted by doctors without borders. Mm-hmm. And then I think uh, we would um, absolutely fail if we didn't mention the ongoing crisis also in uh, Nigeria's Borno State. Mm-hmm. It's an area in Nigeria that's been um, a, very, uh, a very volatile area because of the ongoing conflict between the Nigerian military and the Boko Haram uh, group, and this has displaced upwards of half a million people. Yeah. Many of these people remain trapped uh, also in um, remote uh, villages or enclaves where it's uh, very difficult, if not often impossible, for uh, organizations to independently reach them with the aid that they need, and this, uh, in our case, uh, medical care. 
We also know that this has led to the closure of markets. People haven't been able to cultivate crops. So this has led to a nutrition crisis, which um, effectively has seen uh, the deaths of many children under five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that uh, I don't think has been very well reported on in the media uh, if we compare it to, let's say, for instance, the conflict in Syria um, over time. So definitely on our own continent, uh, several, uh, several areas where, where people are having an incredibly tough time. And I think also our attention should turn to the situation in um, Tanzania, where hundreds of thousands of uh, Burundian refugees are cramped into uh, three camps mm-hmm. uh, facing quite unlivable uh, conditions that have a negative impact on their health and well-being. Now, um, I, I imagine you face quite a lot of challenges. I mean, you've mentioned all these war-torn areas where there's, you know, a lot of uh, 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 infighting, political instability. What are some of the challenges that you've often confronted with and how do you manage to navigate through them? One of the significant challenges that we, we met this year um, it sort of arose from a series of uh, attacks against medical facilities, uh, doctors at our borders facilities, but also others that we are aware of in contemporary conflicts. And in particular, Syria and Yemen, um, I think one incident that stands out in particular for us now, it's been a year after, but still uh, the, the wound is pretty raw, uh, very, uh, very tragic event for us. Last year in October, when U.S. military, uh, US military plane uh, conducted an airstrike and hit and destroyed uh, a Doctors Without Borders um, trauma center in uh, Kunduz in Afghanistan. And this claimed the lives of 42 people, uh, among whom 14 were, were our colleagues. Um, and so we've seen these kinds of situations uh, continue, where during an active conflict, um, other members of a uh, coalition forces or in some instances, uh, militaries um, that uh, are attached to four out of the five UN Security Council members. So therefore, um, the UK, the US, uh, Russia, or China, uh, who are actively involved in these conflicts are actively uh, bombarding or targeting medical care, uh, medical facilities. And this is at a time when the population in those conflict zones are in particular dire need of, of medical care. So patients and uh, medical staff find find very little safe space to work. Uh, we know that uh, between October last year and now, uh, at least 25 attacks in total against uh, uh, medical facilities that MSF uh, run or doctors at our borders run. Yeah. Uh, and this is of grave concern. And we've seen uh, a, a, this year at least quite a, a strong indication that there's a lack of political will to actually stop this from happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not something that should be taken lightly. It definitely is a violation of the laws of war. Mm-hmm. And as terrible and as horrible as war is, we know that there are certain rules that uh, that, that govern how hostilities uh, can be conducted by the belligerents, the people involved in this. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the most important things is that medical care uh, be it either ambulances or hospitals or doctors, nurses, medical staff, patients, civilians. These people are not legitimate targets during times of conflict, and this is being uh, violated in, in entirely, and it's a very worrying situation. Yeah, I can imagine also that uh, it takes a lot of planning from your side in terms of uh, getting all the aid to the different, um, you know, uh, war-stricken countries or, or, or famine-stricken countries. How does the MSF plan to further improve uh, the lives of the people in the coming year? So normally, uh, if we uh, if we look at the number of people that uh, are given medical treatment by our projects in, in close and seventy countries around the world. Uh, we're looking at about 9 million people who receive free medical care from doctors at our borders teams on the ground. And it's normally a mix of people uh, from various countries. We work with international teams and local teams uh, in most of the places where, where we operate. And the backbone of that uh, provision of medical care is um, a very well-oiled logistics machine that's able to dispatch the medical equipment and the material that are required by our teams. To give you an example, sometimes this may mean that we, we have to resort to um, unusual means. So, uh, for instance, we've sometimes had to send supplies on the backs of, uh, of donkeys in some parts. In other parts, we will do outreach activities on horseback or on motorcycles in the DRC. In Haiti this year after Hurricane Matthew, many of the remote villages we were able only to reach uh, by using helicopters.
That was Buri Lakhrania, Head of Communications at MSF, speaking to Tato Tulo. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We broadcast from Johannesburg, South Africa, and our main aim is to provide news, views, interviews, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and the world. We broadcast in six languages, allowing Africa to tell its own stories, promoting the continuation of our continent's unique place as the birthplace of humankind. Africa, rise and shine. Imetimhivyo saa mbili kamili magharibi majira ya Afrika Mashariki ama saa moja kamili jioni saa za Afrika ya Kati na Kusini. Hii ni idhaa ya Kiswahili ya Channel Africa inayokujia katika mitabandi 16 kilohertz 17780 toka Johannesburg Afrika Kusini. Litu Medison. Kitaboni vitume vatezwa na komuniti nkumru tuya kafe kana kwa chwale mikina itungu maboshe ya memha handendendis na kamita ma program ya una yali tumesom zochitika mu afrika titora ndigusimbangani mopanda manta mosa kondera mopanda chibwibwi komanso mosa kuruvika Ndife makutu ndi maso wa Afrika. Grande compétition mensuelle sur Canal Afrique. À partir de ce mois de juillet 2007, Écoutez Canal Afrique, la voix de la renaissance africaine et gagnez de nombreux lots. Amigos ouvintes, muito boa noite. São neste momento 21 horas na África do Sul e hora central africana. Diretamente de Joanesburgo, a cidade do Ouro, aqui na África do Sul, Canal África a transmitir em língua portuguesa para a região da África Austral, numa emissão especialmente preparada para Angola e Moçambique. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A scheme to help increase girls' performance at school by giving them their own bicycle has just been launched in Tanzania by the winner of a special United Nations award. Rebecca Gumi is a lawyer and activist in the East African country who founded the Msichana Initiative which advocates for girls' rights and access to education. She took the prize at the recent inaugural United Nations Children's Fund Global Goals Awards for an individual who achieved significant social change for girls. The award followed the initiative's work on a landmark case that ended legal provisions supporting child marriage. Gumi explains why she decided to start the new project to distribute bicycles to girls. This initiative is actually under Pichana Initiative, which is sort of like our donation drive. What we do with this, we have actually dubbed it One Girl, One Bike, meaning we aim to communities or society where young girls are forced or required to work long distance to school are able to get a bicycle as a means to reach school quickly. So we have just started this project in Dodoma, the capital city of Tanzania, where we have distributed bicycle to girls there, or Form 1 and Form 2, because we believe through that we'll actually enhance their capacity to study well, concentrate, 
in studies, but also increase their performance at school. So it's something that we wish to continue doing in other schools, depending on resources. What challenges have you faced thus far in terms of uh, Mm. resources? The obvious one, the the demand is actually very huge. We have so many communities in, in our country where young girls are forced to walk long distances. So the uh, China Initiative, as we are a small organization, of course, we have a challenge of resources to actually cover or be able to donate to all the communities. So one of the biggest challenges has been, you know, so many people want and would like for us to go in their communities and donate bicycle because of the pressing issue that they have. But, you know, because we don't have so much resources, we actually fail to do that. And I think maybe using this this program as well, maybe I can actually give just like a call for anyone or a good willing person who feels like they would like to contribute or sponsor a girl, you know, there is a demand and an opportunity to do so. You might actually have $50 and think it's, you know, a little, but $50 can be a lifesaver for a girl here and, you know, just Look for us and donate. I think we'll be more than happy to receive your donations. Although we really acknowledge the support that we've been receiving from the government and the communities that have been receiving the donation, but still I think the perception of the communities around here is of, you know, if you are donating something, then, you know, you are responsible 100%. And we were hoping to actually meet these communities, you know, halfway. You know, we give them bicycle, maybe in pumps and everything, then they'll be able to, help maintain maybe the bicycle and everything because they're under the guidance of school. But we had challenges at the beginning because they were expecting that somehow we should be responsible 100%. And I think that's something that we continuously need to raise awareness and try to change mindset, especially for the communities that we're expecting to work with. And what age groups are you targeting? We targeted the girls in secondary school because the dropouts are higher there. But even in the secondary school, we are targeting Form 1 and Form 2 because we believe they have much longer time at school compared to Form 3 and Form 4. So we believe if we give them a bicycle, they will be able to benefit and even monitor, you know, their performance and improve their participation in different school activities because of the bicycle that we're giving them. And long term, what are you wishing to accomplish? Well, in the long term, we hope that every young girl will be able to be safe and feel safe. But we also hope that the China Initiative will be sort of like complementing the ongoing government efforts through the Tanzania Education Authority of building hostels in the schools where they're supposed to walk long distance, so hostel is one of the solutions. So we hope we'll be complementing the ongoing initiative, which is still not in so many regions. That was Rebecca Gumi, founder of the Msichana Initiative, which advocates for girls' rights and access to education on the line to UN Radio's Amina Hassan. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Igreli, Lotugel, and the sands of the Kalahati, have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. I am the grandchild of the warrior men and women that incense the Kukuni land. Patriots at Tetrayon and Pepu took to battle. The soldiers Mushweshwe and Gungunyane taught never to dishonor the cause of freedom. Being part of all of these people, and in the knowledge that none dares contest that assertion, I shall claim that I'm an African.
across the globe every second there's always a breaking story Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa For Channel Africa I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague Reporting for Channel Africa I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A sports update up next with Figi Lilingwati. In our sports update, starting off with cricket news, Protea's head coach, Russell Domingo, hopes to close the year off on a high when they face Sri Lanka in the first Sunfall Test match at St. George's Park in Port Elizabeth on the 26th of December. The Proteas have had an impressive run of results in the second half of the year, winning series against New Zealand and Australia, and will be looking to extend their winning streak in the three-match series. Results aside, Domingo says the series will be an opportunity to continue with the revamped brand of cricket under the leadership of Fav Duplessis and for players to build some consistency in their performances. The Proteas are unbeaten in their last three test matches at St. George's Park, a successful trend helped by the deep understanding of the local conditions. On to football news, South Africa's national women's team, Banyana Banyana captain Janine van Veik, says she's looking forward to her future with the National Women's Soccer League NWSL team Houston Dash after signing a one-year deal with a club based in Houston, Texas in the U.S. Van Veik will get her international campaign underway in March next year, where she will compete among top female players in the NWSL, which is a professional team of 10 soccer league player teams administered by the United States Soccer Federation. Uh, I've made a signing with Houston Dash in the NWSL. Uh, It's the top league in America, so I'm really, really stoked and so excited to be going there and, you know, do do my thing. Uh, The deal is for a year, um, and we will be leaving in March, um, and then the season is only for six months, and then after they will... You know, up to myself or the club, whether they're going to renew my contract or not. But, um, yeah, I'm really excited to just be there and uh, be part of the, the league, such a big league and, and such a big team. Van Veig, a two-time Olympian, becomes the first South African female to join a team in the USA and hopes doors will be open for others. Um, I think I've had a, a, a great year, great 2016. A lot of things have happened, a lot of ups and downs as well. And, um, you know, to be going to such a, a big league for me, I'm really, really happy and proud of myself because, you know, it's it's been so hectic for me in my career and I, you know, dreamt about this moment and this opportunity my whole life. And... It has really come at the right time because at age 29, I think I am um, more experienced than, than most footballers out there, especially in the club uh, that I'm going to. And my knowledge about the game is good. So I think it's come at the right time. But also I'm really going to try and push and open up doors for all um, South African female footballers that want to go play abroad. I think if I do well and... If I'm successful at the club, you know, they will also have a look at South African football players, you know, female footballers every year because there's so much talent in our country. And finally, with golf news, former British Open champion and Solheim Cup captain, 
Helene Alfredson has been appointed the first player president of the Ladies European Tour LET. The 51-year-old Swede registered 21 worldwide victories, including one major at the 1993 Nabisco Dina Shaw Championship. Alfredson also won the British Open in 1990 before the tournament became a major 11 years later and three Evian Masters titles. Alfredson featured in eight solemn cups, including the inaugural competition in 1990 and captained the team when they lost 16-12 to to the United States in Hamstad, Sweden in 2007. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa Congolese nationals in South Africa have threatened to report police brutality with IPED. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, has rejected calls by the ruling African National Congress in the Western Cape for it to recall its premier, Helen Ziller. And Africa is losing more than $50 billion every year in illicit financial outflows. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Tracy Boomgaard, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa is Sipo Kumete with a track titled We Know Who We Are. <laughs>